Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you're listening, however you're listening, this is Quantum of History. This is your host, Don Waldron, welcoming you back for episode three, The Spy Who Loved Me. I want to start off by saying thank you so much to everyone that has been so gracious, so kind, such good words. Thank you, Bud West, the Bond Brain. Thank you, Ray from the Bond Armory. You know, Commando Number Seven, uh, 007, Caleb. You guys have been so fantastic. Such love from the community. You guys have really supported and shouted me out. I, c- I cannot thank you enough for the ongoing support that I've received trying to do this podcast thing. So again, thank you again. Humbled, gracious, and very grateful. Today what we're going to be going into is The Spy Who Loved Me. Roger Moore's third film. This was an important one. This was, uh, this was an important one in the series. It was the first time Saltzman's out, Cubby's alone. And they have to recover from the man with the golden gun. Uh, the man with the golden gun did not do well commercially. It wasn't received well from critics. And they really needed to come back to see if this franchise was going to survive without Saltzman and on Cubby on his own. And I really think that they came back and they actually they, they, they did the job. They get it back. They actually had a good movie with this. Now, a lot of people say that this is Roger Moore's best film. Uh, I don't know. I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. I'm not convinced it's his best film, but it certainly has been, in of all the Moors, in my Blu-ray rotation the most. Moore finds his groove in this one. I think that Roger Moore actually becomes his version of James Bond, not what the director's trying to make or try to live in the shadow of Connery. This is the first time Moore becomes Moore. His charisma, his understated acting, his eyebrow, it all comes back and uh, it really shows and it actually makes for a good performance as Bond. That being said, though, there are certainly plot holes. There's some outlandish action scenes. It drags at times, and that really prevents this movie from being in the top pantheon of Bond films. But it doesn't prevent it from being a classic. It is. It's 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 one of my uh, maybe just outside of the top ten for me. But I do actually enjoy this film for reasons for many reasons. Let's start with the locations. Um, Egypt is Egypt is both a familiar and an exotic place for me. Whenever I see Jaws, uh, Anamasova, and Bond weaving their way through those temples, I'm back to being 12 years old again with my controller playing the N64 Goldeneye and trying to get those damn squares. The pre-title sequence is still amazing to this day. The first time I saw Spy Who Loved Me was 2015. And I remember watching the the pre-title sequence for the first time and thinking, that was actually really awesome. So it still holds the the test of time. When the Union Jack flies out and it bonding, great stuff. Jaws is on the Mount Rushmore henchman for sure. And I cannot tell you, I actually showed this film to my four-year-old, and it was one of his favorites. And I cannot tell you how many times I had to answer the question, could Jaws bite through this? Could Jaws bite through this is now the barometer for how strong metals are in my household. The Lotus is eh. It's kind of dated. It doesn't, I mean, I still, I would never buy a Lotus today. It's kind of like an IROC, you know. I feel like if you're going to be driving around a Lotus, you're probably going to have White Snake playing in the background. It's just, it doesn't hold well. It's not very cool. It doesn't. The biggest problem that I have with this movie, though, is, is by far the plot. Carl Stromberg. What a snooze fest that is. He's he's going to blow up the world just to start an underworld civilization in an air bubble. Like a Doctor No Aquaman thing. I don't know. The whole thing is so dumb. And it really takes away from any anything, any chance that movie has of being really, really, really at the top of it. The end battle to me really, I think the end battle really drags out. And I kind of lose focus and I kind of find myself daydreaming. And every time I see Roger Moore on that ball on the top of the ceiling, 
There's no way I can't picture Roger Moore going, I came in like a wrecking ball. I never hit so hard in love. You didn't know you are going to get singing today. There you go. Blue bonus. And then at the end of the film, it does it does have the, one of the best lines. I'm, I'm going to say the best innuendo line of all the film when he goes, I'm just keeping the British hand up, sir. That, okay, that one, that one saves it. Overall, the movie is really good. I think that The Spy Who Loved Me kind of embodies how I feel about Roger Moore himself. I find the film fun. It's charming. It's lighthearted. Leave Your Brain at Home. It's innocent entertainment. But it just lacks that edge. It lacks the good villain. It lacks the good plot to really make it one of the best Bond films. So why are we here today? You know, why are we dedicating a podcast? What is so historically important in The Spy Who Loved Me that I would sit here and dedicate my third podcast to it? Well, that has everything to do with the Bond girl, Barbara Bach playing Anya Amasova. Now, the way that Barbara Bach plays her role as Anya Amasova is a Russian agent that is Bond's equal. She is the, she is absolutely capable, intelligent, smart, resourceful. She is Bond's equal. They play on that, and they play the kind of the stereotypes at the beginning of the movie when the phone rings and the guy answers it, and they're like, "We're looking for Agent Triple X," and then he hands the phone to. Barbara Bach and it's like oh she's she's the spy and it's a good scene it plays on people's stereotypes and perceptions of what they think spies are so this was the first one where a female is the is the is the spy not the male and as far as Barbara Bach's play portrayal of Amasova um honestly I spent two-thirds of the movie looking at her boobs I mean my grade a cleavage Ms. Bach now look she's been married to a Beatle for 40 years there's no way in this movie is the only time she's called Triple X. You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Get it? It's only Ringo, but it's still a Beatle and there's only two left. So she's got to be doing something right. Now, before you go hashtag me too on me on this podcast, I want to tell you that this, ded- this podcast is going to be dedicated to the brave and courageous and valuable efforts of women spies in World War II. And boobs. But, but, but mainly, the heroic women that played roles as spies in World War II. And the first one I want to talk about is someone that actually Ian Fleming himself knew. And that's going to be Vera Atkins. Ian Fleming is quoted as calling Vera Atkins, quote, In the world of spies, Vera Atkins was the boss. Now, Vera Atkins was born Vera Mera Maria Rosenberg in Galati, Romania. She changed her name from uh, Rosenberg to Atkins because she wanted to hide the fact that she was Jewish. It'd be kind of like nowadays if you met someone named Tommy Wuhan. He's not being, he doesn't want to be called Mr. Wuhan right now, right? So it was the same thing. So she changed her name from Rosenberg to Atkins. Now Atkins actually was born into wealth. She was married, again, from a banker. She was born of a banker. And she enjoyed the cosmopolitan life of Bucharest. In Bucharest, she became close with anti-Nazi ambassador Friedrich von Schurenberg. And he was actually, while in Romania, Atkins came to know several de- several diplomats um, who were part of British intelligence. And they actually vouched for her and were able to get her her British nationality. In February of 1941, Atkins joined the French section of the SOE as a secretary. Um, there she became the personal assistant to Colonel Maurice Buckmaster. So, I heard, I mean, again, you hear this all the time. He's the inspiration for Bond. He's the inspiration for Moneypenny. Now, they say that Vera Atkins is the inspiration for Miss Moneypenny. 
and Buckmaster is the inspiration for M. I think as as more I've as more I've researched Vera Atkins and I learn more about her, she is the Judy Dench M. I mean, I'll let you, I'll read more and I'll talk to you more about her. But if you don't listen to this and think Judy Dench M, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what you the way you picture it. So Atkins' primary role at the SOE was the recruitment and deployment of British agents in occupied France. She also was she also had responsibility for 37 women SOE agents. Um, they worked as couriers. They worked as wireless operators um, for various circuits that the SOE had already established. Atkins would do the housekeeping related to each agent, which means that she would make sure the papers were done, their backstory was right, their acting was good, they knew what they needed to do, they knew their backstory, and they knew how to curve any um, holes that was tried to make in their backstory. And she was responsible for doing the final checks before they would send them off to their missions. So before you were sent in the thing, you would have before you were officially sent, however you were going to go, hiking, skiing, flying, wherever you were going to go, you had to meet with Vera before you were ready. And once Vera decided that you were okay to go, that's when you left the mission, but not before. Once France was liberated in the victory in Europe, Atkins went to both France and then she went to Germany. And what she was determined to do was to find what had happened to her 118 agents who were unaccounted for in the F section. When she first started this, not much was paid attention to, um, but as more and more she found out and more and more what was going on in these concentration camps was revealed, then she was she was instrumental in bringing about war crimes and the Nuremberg crimes and all that. Part of her mission was to make sure that 14 of her women soldiers or agents or civilians, they had many different roles, but the 14 women under her guise that had fallen into concentration camps and were killed, their stories were told, their bravery was told, and the things that they did both before they were captured and during the capture of not revealing secrets that those stories were told. And most of these people, most of these agents that were that were compromised were died under horrific circumstances in the concentration camp. Now Vera always said that she would be the only one that could do this because she needed to know everything about the agents that happened and she did. You had to know their story, their cover, their physique. She even said that you had to know every inch of hair on their head because in order to trace their story and to find out what happened to them you got to understand that what she's trying to do is she's trying to find what happened to a fake person. Now, these agents go under there, guys under different covers with different backstories. And the only way that you find out about these people is you have to follow the, the breadcrumbs. And the only way to know that is to know the fake story. And the only one that knew the fake story was Vera. So to me, when, when I read about Vera and I learn more about her, all I see in my head, I just picture Judy Dench as M. The one scene that I always picture when I see Vera is when she says, "You uh, don't think I'm not afraid to send an agent to his death. And just picture Skyfall, that whole beginning. Take the shot. Take the bloody shot. I don't know. I just picture it's it's Judy Dench for me. The next one on the list is going to be Stephanie Radar. She was born in 1915 in Toledo, Ohio. Um, she spoke both Polish and English both. Um, she was actually, due to her academic excellence, she was sent to Cornell University. And at Cornell, she discovered she um, studied chemistry. But in 1937, it wasn't much use for chemistry. Every, everything in the world is tied up on the war at this point. So in 1942, she joined the Women's Auxiliary Corps. And then in 1944, she was recruited for the Office of Strategic Services. 
Um, that actually became the CIA. That was the CIA before the CIA was the CIA. So Radar was one of two agents that were sent to Warsaw. Her a job. So Poland was kind of for spies. It was Poland and France were the two main places where spies went. Because they were right on the border and there was a lot of German occupation, a lot of information traveling through these places due to the length of occupation and the stronghold that Germany had on it. Now, Radar's guise was that she was searching for lost family members at the embassy. She was trying to find out what had happened to her family, and that was her job. But what she actually was doing was she was gathering information on both police, the Russian troop movements, and political information. And as she got further and better at her job, she actually became a courier. That means that she had to cross borders, which at that time, that was the most dangerous thing you could be as part of being a spy. So she had to actually go to the OSS headquarters in Berlin with all the information that she had accumulated through this time. And on one run, as she was coming back from the Polish border, she knew she was blown. She could tell that the agents were coming for her. And she had documents that she was bringing back that needed to be hidden. So she quickly grabbed the documents and hid it with another person, giving them specific instructions about where to meet. She was then brought in, interrogated, interrogated for a long time, but she had no documents, no evidence, and she held to her story, and they couldn't prove that she was a spy, so she actually was released. It was later found out that she, her cover was blown by some of her superiors in Paris. And even though her cover was born, she still was able, she still wanted to keep working. But they said, it's too much now. Once your cover is blown, you're blown. She actually lived the rest of her days back in the U.S. She never told the stories about what she did. She never told her family what she was until um, the 9-11 Commission actually declassified her files. In 2008, as part of the the uh, Freedom of Information Act, and in 2016, posthumously, she was awarded the prestigious Legion of Merit Award for her service. Now, she was actually nominated in 1946 for this award, but women didn't get this award because it was considered only men's uh, award. So, 70 years later, she finally got the award that she got. And then the third one we're going to talk about, and the last one that we're going to do today, is Jeannie Rousseau. Now, Jeannie Rousseau was known, had a nickname of the human tape recorder because she was able to remember pictures, conversations, and details about things that she didn't even know what the words meant with remarkable accuracy. Now, her journey from interpreter to spy began in 1939 in Denard, Brittany. She began as a translator because she spoke such fluent German and such fluent French. So, Rousseau was interesting how though she described 1939 because... She said that during the occupation in, in the early years, the German soldiers still, it was a relatively friendly occupation. They still wanted to be friends and they still were looking for people to talk to. And the climate hadn't changed to, this is life or death, war, everybody goes. She described that because she f- spoke fluent German, German soldiers were very eager to talk to her. Like, like oh my God, finally. Una chica, finally. Ah, <laughs> oh, sausage fashion, this bitch. So finally... These German soldiers were more than excited to talk to a beautiful, young, charismatic, little French thoughty thought. So she would always, she would get information from these guys. And, you know, everyone's trying to, they're trying to peacock, they're trying to impress. And she got information out of German soldiers. And in 1940, someone, an unknown source approached her and said, hey, do you want to, hey, do you want to just, what, what, what are these dudes telling you? And she started relaying the information that these soldiers were, were doing, trying to spit game, yo. That spitting game gets you in trouble. German suspicion grew that she was spreading information. 
So she was arrested in January of 1941, and she was uh, interrogated in Renee. But there was lack of evidence, and she didn't give up anything she was doing. So she wasn't imprisoned, but she was told, you need to leave the area, and she was exiled. So in 1943, she she was in Paris, and she started working again as an interpreter um, for the Association of French Businessmen. What her job was was to negotiate contracts with French businessmen and the German occupiers. So Vera Atkins, the uh, real-life Judy Dench, actually recruits Rousseau to join the Druids. The Druids were this spy organization that the um, resistance had formed, and they mainly operated in France. And the German opera... So again, she would talk, and she would flirt, and she would get these guys to start talking. So her fake name in Paris was Madeleine Chauffeur. And Germans were unaware that the person they were talking to named Madeleine Chauffeur was actually Jeanne Rousseau. And then her nick, her code name within the Druids was Omniarix. Now, if anybody knows what Omniarix is means, please tell me, because I've been researching, trying to find out if it's a word, if it's slang. If anybody finds this out, please DM me. I need to know this, because I cannot find what this means. So Rousseau was interviewed about what she actually did to get these, to elicit these conversations and these information from German soldiers. And this is a quote she gave. I teased them, taunted them, looked at them wide-eyed, assisted, insisted that they must be mad when they spoke of astounding new weapons that flew over vast distances, much faster than any airplane. I kept saying, what you are telling me cannot be true. I must have said it a hundred times. But, again, dudes trying to smash are the most vulnerable. So get word of advice to soldiers. If a chick's hitting on you in an occupied country... Go in the bathroom, fire one out, and then come back in and tell me if you still want to get, if you still want to divulge government secrets. If you still want to, go for it. But if you get a clear head, stop talking. But, of course, one of the German soldiers couldn't stop talking, and she was insistent. This cannot be true. This cannot be true. So, eager to impress, one of the German soldiers actually started showing her, showing Rousseau pictures. And what these pictures were were V-1 and V-2 rockets to fire long-range distance missiles. And Rousseau didn't know what it was, what they were saying, what these pictures were, but she had such an uncanny ability to remember everything in a photographic memory that she saw these pictures and were able to tell with amazing detail what it was. So even though Rousseau didn't know what she was looking at, she went back and she repeated it to her recruiter, Georges Lamarck, at a safe house in Left Bank. Now, in... London intelligence analyst led by Reginald Jones actually marveled at the at the amazing ability that she had and the amazing accuracy of what she was giving. And one of Rousseau's most prolific intelligence gathering was in the Watson Report. She, delivered in 1943, what it did is it identified German officer in charge of the rocket program, Colonel Max Watson. It gave precise details about the operation and its testing plant in Penemund. Penemund is in the Baltic coast in Pomerania. And it showed planned launch locations on the coast from Brittany to Netherlands. Now, the British relied on this information that Rousseau was able to elicit from these German soldiers. And from the information that was relayed to the British from Rousseau, bombings were planned and bombings were carried out that delayed both the development and the, uh, the, development and the launch of these V-2 and V-1 rockets. And it spared the lives of thousands of people throughout Europe. And shortly before Normandy invasion, in June 1944, the British tried to ev- evacuate. She and two other fellow spies drove 
in uh, to Brittany, where a contact was supposed to guide them onto a um, onto a waiting boat, and then the, from the boat they were going to take them to safety. Now, unfortunately, the day before the rendezvous, their contact was arrested, and it must have given them up because as Rousseau and the two agents got out of the car and started walking to the rendezvous point, German soldiers ambushed them, interrogated them, and brought them to one of the concentration camps. Now, once they were in, in the concentration camps, the Germans weren't able to get the make the connection between uh, Schuffer and Rousseau. They didn't know that the two people were in the same. So they tried and tried and tried, and then they couldn't do it. So they sent her to another concentration camp. Now, to show how clever Rousseau was, when she went to this camp, she didn't give the name Madeleine Chauffeur again, her guy's name. She actually gave her real name of uh, Jeanine Rousseau. So when she was sent to Ravenbrook, which was a woman's concentration camp, they weren't able to identify that Jeanine Rousseau and Madeleine Chauffeur were the same person that was involved in an espionage ring. So she was able to fly under the radar again. Unable to break her and unable to find out what was going, they then sent her to Konigsberg, which is described as the worst of the trash the concentration camps that she was at. It was so bad that she and two friends concealed themselves in a truck carrying prisoners with typhus back to gas chambers at Ravensbrook. And then once they were at the camp, they were going to sneak into the to the barracks just to get out of that that concentration camp. But an informer gave them up, and then they were sent. They were again they were arrested and brought in for more torture. In 1945, the Swedish Red Cross actually found Rousseau. And by that time, she was near death. She was riddled with tuberculosis. She was starved. She was famished. She was diseased. And she had been tortured beyond reach. But the Swedish Red Cross was able to negotiate a way in the waning moments to save Rousseau and get her out of the concentration camp. Now, Rousseau was asked about her time in the concentration camp. And I read about the interviewer, and he said that she kind of had this glazed look over her face. And her quote was, After the war... The curtain came down on my memories. And I can only imagine what atrocities she must have felt. That you just bury that shit and you just never look at that again. She also stated that what I did was so little. Others did so much more. I was one small stone. Most heroes are not braggadocious. Most people just, it's what they do. It's not a big deal to them because they don't think of anything else. It's times of, tar- it's when times are tough. When, it, when the times are down, they need someone to step up. Heroes do it, and they don't do it, and they don't think it's a big deal because it's obvious. That's what you had to do. These are just three examples, but I, during my, doing my research, I had so many encounters and heard so many and read so many stories about other women who had done just remarkable things. But I thought these three were really interesting to do. One, because Vera Atkins is M, and it has a Fleming, has a Fleming connection. Rousseau I found to be so interesting the way that she carried about herself and Radar was one of the Americans so you know go team USA yo the thing that I found a shame in this in doing this research is I had never heard of any of these people I never heard of any of these people Vera Atkins any of these people and I thought that was a shame that kind of history doesn't doesn't describe them as heroes so from the bottom of my heart I just want to thank all the female heroes out there recognized or not for your accomplishments I want to thank you for your efforts, your bravery, your heroism, and your boobs. Thanks again for listening. This is your host, Don Walden, with Common of History. Follow me on Quantum of History on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. And again, thank you for your ongoing support, guys. I can't thank you enough. Enjoy it. Be safe. Subscribe. And be safe out there. Watch out for Rona.